for a lot of people, the, the Southern hip hop is a lifestyle. It's, it's, I think when folks come up with that music, they come up with the 95 Source Awards. They come up with this particular understanding of how the music is always underestimated. They grow up having seen the 95 Source Awards. So really, once I come to Atlanta, it's, it's not just getting acclimated. It's about learning this whole history. And I still feel daunted by it, even all these years later after having moved to Atlanta. From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm Brandon Hill, and I'm here today with Ryan and Mickey. Uh, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, what's up? It's Ryan Gore, writer at Central Source. Um, check out my upcoming piece on Otis Mensa and my Why We Like It piece on Critical Mischief's new song. I really like that one. And yeah, listen to that from Mickey Grab. And Mickey? What's going on, everybody? This is Mickey Hellerback. I'm also a writer at Central Sauce, as well as Euphoria Magazine and Notion Magazine. Um, I've uh, recently written three really great Why We Like It pieces for Central Sauce, um, which I talked about, I think, on the last episode of In Search of Sauce. And I've got a couple other uh, interviews tucked that I am too superstitious to talk about here, but <laughs> follow me on Twitter at Mickey Montebello to see all the updates. Hopefully some of them will be out, or at least one of them will be out by the time you listen to this. And I'm Brandon Hill. I'm also a writer and editor with Central Sauce. And uh, you can subscribe to my writing newsletter with the link in my bio on Twitter at Hoopla Hill to get writing updates like my soon-to-come-out transcript with the uh, British jazzy lo-fi band Fika, which I'm really excited for. So today we have a special edition of In Search of Sauce programming. Today's episode <clears throat> is a continuation of our series of bonus episodes where we interview journalists to get the sauce directly from the source. She's a freelance music journalist with an expert focus on Southern hip hop. She has bylines at NPR, Bandcamp, Thrillist, The Guardian, The Creative Independent, Stereo Gum, Rolling Stone, Red Bull Music Academy. Pitchfork, and The Washington Post. She has co-hosted a number of podcasts, including Bottom of the Map, Some to Say, and Racket Inside the Club. She's also the recipient of an Atlanta Press Club Award for the creative loafing cover story, Straight Out of Stankonia. Today, we welcome Christina Lee to In Search of Sauce. We're super excited today to have Christina Lee here, uh, Southern hip-hop journalist extraordinaire. Um, just, you know, get things started, get things rolling a little bit. Tell us a bit about what you've been listening to lately. Um, lately, I've been listening to the new Open Mike Eagle album, Anime, Trauma, and Divorce. On the queue, though I haven't heard it yet, is the new T.I., the Libra. And, um, I mean, besides that, I would say Jungle Pussy's discography, um, Janae Aiko, and what else do I got going on? Oh, um, I mean, this was for a band camp assignment, but I've been listening to Namir Blade. He's like one of their newer signees, and he's from Nashville. Awesome. How are you feeling about the open mic, by the way? 
How do I feel about Open Mic? Yeah, the new album. How do you feel? like? Oh, my God. If you're in your 30s, you're in for a doozy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I had to review the album or like give a synopsis. It was less a review and more of a synopsis for NPR's New Music Friday podcast. So I did get to listen to it last weekend. So I downloaded it to my phone and then my partner and I, we headed over to, you know, just like the grocery store to pick up some essentials. And on the way over there, though, comes the Black Mirror episode song. And we looked at each other and we were like, I know he's calling for a content warning, but for us, because we've been married, we got married earlier this year. It would be nice for us to know exactly which episode he's talking about. Not that we're going to watch the show, because like after four episodes, I think we all like tapped out. But that's how that's how intense it felt. It feels like an open mic eagle album, but this time it felt like a little extra personal. Plus, we've been watching JoJo's Bizarre Adventure lately, so feels kind of tailor made for us at this time. Yeah. yeah the the Black Mirror song was so like was so intense, but yet also still really funny. Yeah. Uh, we actually we actually had a discussion the other day about like which episode we thought it was. So. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> okay. If you guys figure that out, please let me know because I will avoid it at well, all costs. Yeah. You guys should go. My, go for it. My <laughs> guess. My guess was, um, what was the episode called? The entire history of you. Um, it's the one where people get these implants that let them literally like replay their memories so that they can like watch back their memories. Um, and then it sort of follows the path of like this married couple who has a relationship and how it changes their relationship when they're able to like go back and replay, you know, like the better times of their relationship and just kind of evolves the dynamic of that. That was, that was my guess. That's a good guess. That's a very good guess. And it suits just the word trauma being in the album title. (laughs) Like, all of, of Mike's music is about trauma, but the fact they just put it outright and center in this one, yeah, it really clicks. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so Christina, the um, it's cool that we're starting the conversation about kind of art rap, for sure, which is, that's like a term that I'm I'm saying that feels very coined by Ryan, at least. Although, I don't no. know. It might not be, but I, I don't know. I feel like, Ryan, yeah, Ryan really... Heard me say about. it first. I did hear you say it first, for sure. Um, but uh, I definitely wanted to dive in straight ahead from for what I I view as the, the core of what I read and hear from you journalistically, um, which is Southern hip hop journalism specifically. Um, and this, we'll start really broad and then obviously we'll get more specific as we go. Um, but, but broadly and generally, um, what brought you to the place where you either decided or just it became Southern hip hop became the core of, of the journalism that you put out? I just so happened to move to Atlanta in 2000. Well, first it was in 2009 because I wanted to become a music journalist. I had no prior experience and there was only one internship that would take me because I had essentially aged out of every other internship. I was a year out from college at this point. So this happened to be with Pace Magazine in in Decatur, Georgia, which is in the east side of Atlanta. And... um. It was after that internship when I came back because I was like, I don't know what else I'm going to do that I kind of look around and see what's happening around me. You know, I think Atlanta has 
its respective scenes. There's electronic music going on. Um, there's a really healthy punk scene here. You know, Atlanta has always had a lot going on for it. But it was also just hard to ignore the fact that Gucci, Jeezy, and T.I. were coming up and really starting to cement themselves within the city. So this is also around the same time when I'm just figuring out how to freelance. In general, like, I just don't. I felt somewhat comfortable diving into it just because I knew people around here now after having done the internship. But once I really started to pursue music journalism full time, I decided to write about what was around me. And this was also particularly helpful just because the major media outlets in New York, like MTV, for example, wanted to know what these people were doing. And this was just around the time when trailing these people was enough. So at this time, I don't necessarily have my own critical point of view. You know, I, I can't really call myself a critic at this point. I'm just writing about what's happening. And it really helped to be able to just trail Gucci Mane around in a music video shoot around the time that I was sort of gaining my footing in journalism. That's really the basis of it. Mm. So then just to, to go back a little, because I think, you know, we're getting into a point where it's, it's good to go back chronologically, especially we talked a little bit before us both being from Maryland. Um, but what what, if any, um, Southern hip hop influence did you have growing up? Um, <laughs> I was telling Yo and Jaw this recently. Um, almost none. It's kind of <laughs> wild. Um, it was with the NPR Southern hip hop canon project that folks were still debating whether Maryland was considered the South or not. And growing up, I did not think of Maryland as the South necessarily. I just hadn't really thought about it. I always thought of it as like mid-Atlantic or, you know, sort of like weirdly nebulous. And the way that clips, for example, carried themselves reminded me so much more of like a mob deep than Mm. anything I would have considered quote unquote Southern. I also didn't necessarily have a frame of reference until at the very least high school. Um, I wasn't at all familiar with Outkast until my mom got cable in the house, which was in high school when I should have been studying for SATs and all that stuff. And so when I'm seeing these music video countdowns, there was only really one group that was portraying themselves on purpose as like country bumpkins. So I'm thinking about the Miss Jackson video. I'm thinking about So Fresh and So Clean. You know, so that was my initial frame of reference for Southern hip hop. Um, it was admittedly very, very recent. So I picked up on something you said about how coming straight out of college, um, you you know were immediately looking for an internship in like music journalism, right? So what what when you went to college, did you have the intention like when you started school that you wanted to be a music journalist? Oh no, not at all. Um, when I attended the University of Maryland College Park, the two tracks were print and broadcast. And I immediately went to print because I didn't want to talk to anybody, at least like in front of the camera (laughs) or on the mics or anything. Um, And by the time I go to college, my only idea of what a music journalist was, was like an MTV VJ. So I was thinking of a Suchin Pak, a Gideon Yego, a Sway Calloway, of course. I'm thinking of those type of people. And in my mind, those people are way too cool for what I'm trying to do. So uh, to me, that was just like way beyond anything. I hadn't really like thought of music, mag- or I hadn't really known that music magazines were a thing until uh, maybe like my friend Mimi in high school when she picked up in a spin and occasionally, 
and was like, hey, you heard of this guy named Chuck Klosterman? I'm like, he sounds like a douche. I don't think so. But um, but that was basically it. So going into college, I was taking every single internship possible. I did intern once under an arts and entertainment editor, and this was for the Baltimore Sun, actually. Oh, wow. But I hadn't really thought of that a quote-unquote music journalist was a real job available to me. Right. And I was just kind of thinking of what you're saying when not really growing up with like Southern hip hop around you and then moving to Atlanta, was there, because from afar, Atlanta seems so particular, like has its own particular energy, like just watching from the, the UK. So was there like an adjustment period to both being in Atlanta and being in Atlanta and commenting on like the music scene there? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think there was definitely an adjustment because for a lot of people, the, the Southern hip hop is a lifestyle. It's, mm. it's, I think when folks come up with that music, they come up with the 95 Source Awards. They come up with this particular understanding of how the music is always underestimated. They grow up having seen the 95 Source Awards. So really, once I come to Atlanta, it's, it's not just getting acclimated. It's about learning this whole history. And I still feel daunted by it, even all these years later after having moved to Atlanta, because that's just Atlanta, you know, right around. I'm always feel like I'm discovering some other artist that kind of helped pave the way even before the 95 source awards. Like um, if you were to, I guess, go out onto the main road here and then head a little bit down this way, not that y'all can actually really see this, (laughs) but there was one of the original big oomph locations and big oomph was like, a physical mixtape store hawking these mixtapes these mixes by the dj jelly up until really jeezy was coming out with trap or die um that's a relic of a scene that was even prior to when outcast is being covered by the source awards and stuff so it's just it's just a lot to it's not even so much about getting acclimated it's about just like digging deep and having this there's no way to have a complete understanding but you could try yeah, and you mentioned something about, you know, like having to go back and sort of study Outkast um, to sort of get a feel for Atlanta. And that's something like I relate to a lot being, you know, towards the younger side of hip hop, like not having grown up in like the hip hop golden age. You know, I find that a lot of times I have to go back to these albums and I'm st- like rather than like living with them, you know, it's more examining them with the at- intent of like, how did this affect like the music atmosphere at the time? Um, and I know you actually talked about this on the most recent episode of Some to Say with Yo and Jaw, uh, where you mentioned Stankonia being like the first Outcast album um, that you had like really listened to. So how do you think that it sort of changes our relationship with the music when we approach them as a study as opposed to, you know, sort of experiencing in the, in the time that they were released? It's definitely a different type of relationship. Um, and it's one that I can't help but to feel self-conscious about sometimes because the thing about journalism, particularly when those earlier groups or those earlier hip hop acts are coming out, um, it's coming usually from a very, very specific perspective. I know this is around the same time of like the golden age of like print and music magazines and things like that. But anytime that I look back at those reference materials, I only see 
the very specific lens it's coming from, if that makes any sense. Like I'm only, I'm seeing the fact that like a Charlie Braxton would have to call Alcast to the attention of the staff of Double XL or the source or whatever, just because he's like, hey guys, not all gray rap is from New York. I kind of, the one, I guess, good thing about covering music today is that you get to see a whole bunch of perspectives, whether you like it or not. And I know that's like pretty overwhelming, but at the same time, because of the internet, I suppose, um, I'll, criticism is available like more readily to a lot of different people. A lot of people, a lot more people I feel are able to kind of see themselves in this position where they feel like an authority. So I think that's like kind of, I mean, that's one of the main differences that I that I think of. Uh, one thing I do like to do with some of those golden age era releases is that I like to text my uncle and see like how he felt about stuff around that time because uh, he's less than a decade older than I am, but he used to have this insane vinyl collection. And he was the one who really sort of introduced me to like the mob deeps, like the biggies and the Nas's and all that type of stuff. So I always let, at, like asking his opinion because the, the conversation around those releases can be so interesting. Sometimes you learn that it takes so much time to determine what a quote unquote classic is. Sometimes it's instantaneous, but other times it's only really like after the fact. And it's always interesting hearing about those like first impressions. And that humbles me as well, because I feel like there's no way to know for sure, absolutely how something is going to be received or going to be, um, yeah, going to be influential way down the line. Yeah. And like going back to the episode that um, Brandon just mentioned, like you talked about like the source being that voice back then that it was, e I guess, easier back then to look at the source and say, okay, they gave it this much, it was respected because of that. But you'd say about nowadays there's no publication you can look at and say that's like some kind of um, sweeping voice for hip-hop or even for, like, for music. Um, so do you think like that responsibility to be that voice falls on individual like freelance journalists like yourself nowadays rather than like a publication? Absolutely. Absolutely. I find that more often than not, as embarrassing as it sounds, I'm way more likely to read something based on who, whose name is on that byline, for mm -hmm. sure. I feel like I've followed writers from publication to publication because it's their opinion who I trust. And, yeah. you know, being part of journalism, of course, you understand how I hate using the word volatile, but it kind of is how unstable a lot of these publications are. Like you start to see how crazy the turnover is or you start to see that, oh, like they had to let go of their entire like writing staff because we're all pivoting to video now. So I think a lot of it is just due to just this particular environment that we're working with, um, some of these unfortunate circumstances. So you understand that like good folks are going to just pop up wherever and i guess it's up to you the reader to just be able to keep track of their every move and you're and you know now you yourself are like an authority on southern hip-hop specifically um which is like sort of interesting coming from how you know hearing you talk about like how you've had to study it um and you mentioned you know two things you mentioned were you know being self-conscious about how you approached it and then also like humbling yourself and you know and reaching out to people like your uncle um to sort of get that context which I think are both two traits of a good journalist, you know, is having having the the self-consciousness to make that outreach um, to get the full context. But when, 
you know, through this research and stuff, when did you start to feel like you became an authority on Southern hip hop? Or even, you know, when when did you feel like other people started responding to you as, a, as an authority on Southern hip hop? See, I'm not good at keeping up with responses. That's something that my therapist <laughs> tells me to do. She tells me to keep a pile of my physical achievements, like my stuff on print, because it just doesn't resonate in my head. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I may be able to see it physically, but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's a matter of it sort of registering to my brain. I will say that this year um, I have felt a little bit more comfortable with the criticism aspect of it. I think a good portion of my career thus far to me has just been about like talking to the right people. The way that I tended to approach journalism was not necessarily through album reviews, though I did do those on occasion. It was kind of seeing what gaps in history needed to be covered or what needed to be expanded upon and just getting it straight to the source. And so for me, like a lot of um, what I'd been working on was just more so about interview skills. It was about like knowledge base. It was coming from a place where I feel like I could meet the interview subject kind of like head on. So really, I'm looking at journalism as like, let me make sure that I am sort of elevating the, not the right voices, but just sort of in my mind, it's like, I'm going to seek out whoever the authority is and I'm going to make sure that people know what it is. So like with big boy, for example, if I'm interviewing like a big boy, the perspective that I take on is like not falling in the same trap where I feel like people tend to underestimate his contributions to outcast or sort of, um, his own grasp on his artistry it's asking questions like where do you think the player versus poet dichotomy comes from because it doesn't sound like you made this shit up and yeah. being able to hear from his from his own to, own mouth like no that wasn't me that was some pr thing but it is cast like this looming influence like over our career because that's how people came to regard ourselves so um I, that didn't answer your question whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, well, I it did, gets there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it very much does on a level. But I'm really glad we're talking about um, how you view your own role specifically within your journalism, because I think that transitions really well to something I've been very excited personally to talk about, which is bottom of the map. Um, and uh, the thing that, um, if there's anything that I love about it the most, it is, uh, how defined you and Dr. Regina Bradley have made your roles on the show and how much, as you talked about, kind of like um, some version of like uplifting other people's voices, but how you uplift each other's voices. Um, so my question is, did you think about that going in or to define kind of what your roles were on the show or um, did you kind of develop it as you went along? Um. The thing about bottom of the map was that I don't think much of it had to be really thought out because the way that Regina puts it, she's like her my oh, God, I'm going to misquote her so bad. But she's like, my hip hop expertise stops at like 06 or something like that. And that's because she's so busy studying Outkast and Dungeon Family and their sort of looming influence over the Southern hip hop that like, you know, like. Obviously, if we're going to be talking about 21 Savage, she's going to look at me and be like, okay, what's up? Um, it, it really just 
the I guess the core appeal of the show was defined from the get go because the way that Regina looks at the world is so defined by her academia, which she is completely 100 percent passionate about. It's about understanding that she's going to say the word futurity instead of future. And I'm just going to like remember like, OK, this is what this means. And um, and then on the other hand, you know, she the way that she always um, defines my role, it's like, well, you are already in the trenches. And you, you know, you're talking to these people firsthand while we're over here doing like the critical analysis. So um, it, our roles weren't necessarily thought out. It was just like from the jump, we recognized that we had, we came with these very different perspectives. And we, of course, we have the utmost respect for each other because of hmm. those perspectives. Hmm. That's super interesting because in what was going to be my next question anyway, because I feel like you almost slightly answered it, though I'm not totally sure, so I'm still going to ask it. Um, you started the show specifically with talking about trap, which now listening to you um, say that, that actually seems like it, when you said Regina, um, her cutoff was 06, that's kind of like the transition in, well, you know, a little bit before that, but that's kind of where your perspectives, I would assume, kind of cross over. So I wonder... Firstly, if that had anything to do with that choice or if there was another defining thing that made you want to start with talking about trap. I don't I think the trap music episode I I think that might have been it wasn't the first one we actually recorded ever. I remember that much. We right. did do an okay. unreleased pilot um and I think we might have tried to do another episode prior to that. I could be wrong. But um I'm going strictly off Apple Music podcast. No, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> no, I mean, that's what I mean. We definitely yeah, released yeah. There's a Trap for That first. We yes. released it first, but I don't know if it's the first episode that we actually recorded. So I'm trying to remember like exactly. what our um, our logic going into that was. Right. Yeah, I think um, we're... It's funny that the show is called Bottom of the Map because mm. that, that Jeezy album, TM 101, yeah. is also where interests like 100% converge. And yeah. then from there, it's it we we diverge because she's way more into like that earlier TI, like the trap musics and things like that. Whereas I tend to go over here with Gucci, but Jeezy, Jeezy, Jeezy is where we connect. TM 101 is where we connect like 100%. So, I mean, that was pretty serendipitous. Cool. Um, so in your opinion, what's the ideal way to give trap the validation it deserves in the mainstream without drowning out the equally deserved validation of its roots? What do you mean by that? What, like, what's an example where you see it being invalidated? Um, so I, I mean, in the terms, and you kind of talked about this in bottom of the map, um, it's like when trap verges over into what would be considered, I guess, mainstream pop. So with like a Ariana Grande, which I remember you specifically kind of talking about where it like shifts over to that kind of side of it or the style of that type of music, but where you can allow that to happen to kind of uplift, like trap has this ability to be global, but also still giving validation to the core root of where it came from. What's the ideal way in your mind to do that? Do you think? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think the the influence trap is had by way of sound that can't be helped necessarily um, 
to like I had a bigger problem with Ariana Grande like co-opting the pig trap house than I did with like her sort of like co-opting the sound you know what I mean um, sure heard that because I'm trying to think of what other sound is really more emblematic of our times when mm. music is just being created more digitally than ever and this is such an like the trap hi-hats and like the bass and stuff like that is the easiest way to sound current to me that just signals like you're with it um i think it really just kind of comes down to first of all um maybe tiktok accounts that didn't try to whitewash history i'm thinking more specifically of like what that slowed in reverb stuff like uh -huh. i i understand that that how I guess that explainer must have been created by somebody who was like 15. So I have all the more sympathy <laughs> for her. But I think it's just about like expanding your knowledge base and just being like curious. I think that's what it mainly comes down to. It's sort of I think people are. I think that's all that it comes down to is just like information, like not getting lost. And I guess these artists as well going right to the source. That's the other yeah. thing too, right? Like, yeah. so I know Regina loves to call Drake the carpetbagger, right? <laughs> but at the end of the day, when you break down the names behind Nice For What, you are having folks who are entrenched in the New Orleans bounce scene. And it's not mm -hmm. just Big Frida. It comes down to the very producers who specialize in these bounce remixes. Of course, like, there's a nod to Lil Wayne in there. Um, there is this whole musical heritage that is embedded in what's otherwise a very innocent sounding song. Um, so I hate to give Drake credit, but that's the very least that you can do, I feel, is to be able to go to the source when you are seeking out these particular sounds. I feel like sounds are gonna get like co-opted or used or borrowed nonetheless, because that's just how artists work. Artists seek out influence from all over the place, but you know, just don't, don't go off brand. Just don't go off brand. Don't go Kroger brand. Don't go Dryant brand. That's it. So to be to be clear, what you're saying is the ideal way to do both is what Drake did with Nice for What. And I hate saying, <laughs> I hate giving him credit for anything. I hate giving him credit for anything. But I'm fair. You see how I'm trying to be fair? Yeah. Oh, totally. No, it's. It, I mean, Drake is the epitome of the conundrum of kind of those two things for sure. I. I hope Regina hears this, and I'd be so interested to hear what she has to say to that answer. <laughs> yeah. Um. The the next question I wanted to talk about, which um I think to me because it made so many connections in my head, uh, was to uh, the, the episode where you talked about the erasure of the Southern female rapper voice. Um, and I, uh, it may, it, the, the dots are connected in my head um, were actually to, uh, have you ever read Playing in the Dark by Toni Morrison? Playing in the Dark by who? Playing in the Dark by Toni Morrison. No, tell me. So it's very interesting. So this is, bear with me for this, this is a little bit of a spiel. So Playing in the Dark is um, basically talks about the erasure of the, the black existence or black voice by um, early 20, 20, 21st century white American writers. And how it would, this is like totally like breaking it down to so, so little when that book explores so much. But um, talking about how, you know, 
in order for those white writers to leave black people out of those stories, they would have had to proactively do it because they were so much a part of those scenes that they were writing about. Um, do you feel like there's any connection from that to what happened or is still happening potentially with the, the Southern black female rapper voice? I mean, that's America for you, isn't it? Yeah. I feel like in a nutshell, there has to be, there has to be, because I just remember that weird period of time where people kept trying to tell me, and, and by me, I mean like the royal we, everybody, that like bad Barbie was going to be a thing. And I was <laughs> like, guys, guys, like there isn't a shred of originality to her. You were, what you were trying to do is repackage what all these other artists are doing into like a more desirable image. That's all that it really is. Um, but I feel like now, like with somebody like Megan Thee Stallion up there, that's why somebody like her gives me so much hope because mm -hmm. she is a force to be reckoned with for that very reason. It's that not only is that voice very authentic to her, very true to her, but like she does so in a way that is like, look, I'm not going to apologize for being who I am and looking how I look and taking so much pride in my very image. Um, so I, I definitely see a connection. I definitely see where you're talking about. That story seems as American as apple pie, but mm -hmm. I would like to hope that times are different now. Yeah. I think for me too, I, I wholeheartedly agree that M Megan the Stallion has, has felt like such a, fre a, a breath of fresh air in, in that respect too, kind of with hope of like a new beginning as far as that kind of goes. Oh, um, and then the and other thing too. Hold on, hold on. I just remembered that Charlie Diamello exists because that's the other issue too. So it's not even just about these lyricists. It's also about these TikTok dances. You see what I'm saying? Like we have to remember that too because I feel like it's interesting what Charlie has been offered versus the very people that create not just these dances, this is like intricate choreography that I feel like a lot of these 15, 16 year olds from Houston, Atlanta, whatever, could actually copyright. But you see who's getting offered what. So I don't know, maybe times are changing, but then you, you gotta look around and see like, well, wait a second, who's yeah. getting like a reality TV deal? Who's getting a podcast deal? Like, I mm -hmm. think her sister has a recording deal now. It's, come yeah, on. it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, history I always like to think of history as like a kind of swirling tornado that kind of goes up a little bit but then kind of comes back down um I wish we had a visual so people could see how my finger was moving. <laughs> <laughs> I realized um but yeah I think that kind of taps into that um so this is kind of like talks about like a little bit of historically a little bit and I swear this is my last topic that I wanted to dive in on bottom of the map but these were like the big three that I really felt like I wanted to talk to you about um and that's the idea of black country um, and this is a, a thing that I actually wrote a piece about too specifically. So I kind of wanted to mix what you said based on a thing that I was kind of dissecting. Um, is so why can't little Nas X be a part of American country music, modern history? What, what do you think is like the big overarching reason that you think that they were not allowing him to? Oh, God, why space. weren't they letting him be great? Um, that's yeah. a good question. I think it really did just come down to image. It couldn't have right. been anything else. Because you hear the, the Luke Bryans, the Florida Georgia Lions or whatever, and 
they perfectly fit the image of country or bro country or whatever you want to call it. They were dabbling with trap. They were saying like, hey, we grew up with this rap music too, but hey, we're still driving pickup trucks. I think it really 100% just came down to image. But then also country music is one of those genres that still has formalities. Not that a lot of these genres don't, but I, um, from what I understand anyway, it's like you have to make the rounds and you have to do so in a way where you know the right people and specifically the rounds in, entails radio. It still entails radio. So you still have to have these particular cosigns to feel like you are being literally backed by the industry. Mm-hmm. They are not used to mixtape cuts yet. That is the one mm-hmm. thing about country music is that maybe they've adapted these sounds that came from like these mixtape cuts, but they are not used to surprise drop. They don't like surprises. And so when Lil Nas X drops a surprise and tags a country on SoundCloud, of course they're not going to like it. They're like, right. we didn't sign off on this. Right. So <laughs> I think that's all that it really is. It's just that um, Lil Nas X didn't make the rounds. Right. So the other thing you kind of tapped into that episode was that the um, kind of black or rap country music also does come from these what would be considered country towns. And the example of that was like using a big crit. So the thing that I noticed that I was wondering if you had any perspective on is that there's actually artists to me that are coming up that would be considered maybe trap artists that to me are making music that from what I view as like country music to be are actually making music to me that sounds very much like what the black version of actual country music would be and the prime example that i gave in the piece i wrote which i think it's good timing because he just released that big single with drake is young blue so to me when i listen to him i like hear these qualities of like um kind of forlorn love and things like that that exist inherently in country music and so i guess another question on top of that is what do you think it would take for kind of the mainstream of country music to accept artists like him to be within the genre. Oh God, that is a whole other thing. You have to talk to like a whole bunch of white people to figure that out. Um, (laughs) I, I don't, I don't really know what it's going to take, but I mean, I think from a critical standpoint, it is worth questioning these categories and what qualifies as such. I I do think that with rap music, I mean, what the thing that rap music always has to contend with is that this everybody within this diverse pool essentially has to compete within themselves. And sometimes that that's why an open mic eagle has to qualify himself as art rap. You see what I'm saying? Because then otherwise Mm. what happens is that if he doesn't if he doesn't insert the art part in there then he gets compared to a Jay-Z, a Lil Baby, or whatever. And I 100% Mm. agree with you. I feel like there is a lot of rap with, because of the melodic tendencies in sort of the rawness of their voice, in my mind, it always resonates as more folkish or more country than I feel like these folks would ever give him credit for. I think when um, Young Boy Never Broke Again goes real sad, you could you could certainly argue that that's almost like rap folk or whatever. Lil Baby, when he's depressed, same thing. Like, and I think it just kind of comes down to like the quality of their voice and how they tend to um, treat it in addition to the subject matter, of course. So I guess what does it take? Uh, it does kind of fall on journalists and falls on criticism because in the, at the end of the day, the industry is going to f- just kind of sort of follow whatever lead we 
you know, set out. If we continue to just file these artists or these songs under blanket terms, like a rap, like a hip hop, and just settle for that, then that's all that we're really going to get. But I think if we kind of take the care to kind of distinguish all these different strains and subgenres in the same way that we have seen with countless genres before this, it's not new, then perhaps, I hope, the industry would then follow. Yeah, and I think it has a lot to do with like how audiences intersect too. Um, and I've talked about this before with Chance the Rapper specifically. I think he's a great example. Like for a long time, Chance the Rapper avoided the label of a Christian rapper, right? Because if he puts his music under Christian rap, then, you know, the, the section of the population that listens to Christian rap, Christian rap listens to it specifically because it's Christian rap as opposed to just listening to broader rap. Um, and I think with, when you talk about, like, black country artists, you get some of the same interaction. Like with Lil Nas, um, even if you categorized his music as country, he's still not, you know, not tapping into the full country audience that's listening to, you know, the Luke Bryans or the Florida Georgia lines and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think even even the term Christian rap I'm learning is problematic in of itself, right? Because you notice that a Kendrick Lamar doesn't fall under that typically, even though right. his albums can be full-length explorations of how this shit actually plays out in real life. Uh, I recently moderated a conversation with Lecrae, who from the very jump gets labeled as a gospel rapper from his first Grammy onward. But that distinction came along with this idea that he only does praise music. It actually, in the very, in it's, uh, I guess with praise music, like the assumption was that it was almost as celebratory as when Chance the Rapper was touring for Coloring Book. I remember seeing him live and being like, am I in a mega church? Like, you know, you, you yes. Know? <laughs> it was yes, crazy. Yes, I saw him. I saw him at Bonnaroo, and so Coloring Book was before he really started wearing the label of Christian rapper, um, and it kind of came, you know, with that tour. I saw him at Bonnaroo, and you know, a hundred thousand people at that show, and he's he's there as a rapper, as a hip hop artist, but yet, you know, he's stopping the show to ask people about like you know their belief in God and that they like asking people if they can find Christ, and he was only able like clearly that's something that has like meant a lot to him throughout his life. But he had to get to a certain point before he could make that like the most front facing aspect of, you know, his identity as a musician. Um, and like and so in this instance, you mentioned Kendrick, too. And that's where I think like labels like this can be more damaging to the artist almost because, you know, once you put a label on like I guess it's, you know, some country fans would be afraid that once you put a label on Lil Nas X or Young Blue, and you put a label on them as country music now. So now all of a sudden, like these country fans and these musicians are worried about, you know, who they're competing against and where that's going to take, you know, the whole genre of country music. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that they have to be completely filed to the other side as well. I think my, um, I guess what I'm thinking about is how rock is afforded all the nuance in the world. You have the heavy metals, you have the folk rocks, you have the experimentals, you have everything in between. I can't even like count, honestly, or like electronic, how it's you kind of segs off into dance, into disco, into uh, whatever Aphex Twins is. Like, I swore I knew this yesterday. But um, like all these other genres kind of get afforded like this critical nuance to where 
all these people can just fit in under this umbrella. But if you really think about it, it's like, oh, this is all like really rock or that's all that I'm really saying. It's like, I, I can't imagine a world where young blue might compete with a Florida Georgia line in the, but I think what it's, (laughs) (laughs) but it, but it's interesting how with certain genres that just seems like too crazy of an idea to be like, you know Mm -hmm. what? Let's, file another category and let's make another subcategory out of that i think that's what i really want it's just it's just more nuance more subtlety i guess just like a because because then what otherwise happens is that you get these really dumb hot 97 segments where Lil Uzi Vert is like, no, I don't want to rap to this dj premiere and beat even though like it, you know that obviously like wasn't the issue but it's like, otherwise it seems like rap is, cons- rap that I feel like shouldn't have to compete with itself ultimately gets pitted against one another because people are trying to fight for what hip hop is. It's like, let, no, let's not come up with one singular definition. Let's expand. Let's broaden it because there's too many people doing this stuff now. And honestly, it's more fun this way. Right. And I think, you know, that like that statement is a really good you know, representation of sort of Southern hip hop as a whole, um, being sort of othered, you know, by hip hop for a really long time. And then, you know, with Outkast and the, uh, the South got something to say, um, NPR piece as well, like sort of dove into that perspective of why Southern hip hop has been so otherized. And like you mentioned before, the range of Southern hip hop covers all the way down to like New Orleans bounce and just so many different sounds. But when it's, you know, it was tried to be otherized by, you know, bringing in the trap and the what the one phrase that really stuck out to me in that piece was calling Young Thug um, post vocal or like post lyrical rap. Um, so I think that that's especially like an apt analysis coming from like a Southern hip hop perspective. And, you know, learning that perspective through Southern hip hop can help apply that to, you know, a lot of other things that are in the same category. Yeah, absolutely. Or within the same realm. Absolutely. I think um, contending with Southern hip hop has definitely opened my eyes to how stupid it is to try to compare all these different forms just because if we're doing bottom of the map or if we're doing something to say or whatever, it it, the more you look at it, the more it's like, you're really comparing apples and oranges here. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Or even in regards to like Atlanta hip hop, um, I guess the fallback question a lot of times with these younger artists is like, what do you think of Outkast? I, f- I feel like first there's only going to be one answer to that. They they know not to disrespect the name, but at the same time, it's like, it's so completely different. And I feel like we should just regard it as such. I think it's just the respectful thing to do to kind of mm-hmm. take in the music for what it is and just not be dumb. <laughs> yep. Facts. So just to sequence back a little bit to what is my final bottom of the map question, but this one's more technical, but I think is really important to, to dive into, which is what go, what goes into a full episode of doing that show? Cause it, to me, it, it must take just such immense research and specificity each yeah. one of those episodes. Yeah. Um, so going into each season, um, we have just written down like a list of umbrella topics, whether that it be the influence of HBCU marching bands to like, it really it literally comes down to like, we want to talk about Southern hip hop and the intersection of list, whatever mental health. Um, let's see. Uh, 
why am I blanking out on everything that we have absolutely done? But yeah, um, we like, it literally just comes down to us like listing out the topics. And then as the recording date approaches, I always trust Regina. I don't know what Regina does specifically, but I always trust that she just has like this encyclopedic knowledge bank already at her disposal. <laughs> you know what I mean? And she's also lived this life. You know, she is a down South Georgia girl. So I, I trust her with that process. Um, and then for me, it's about compiling notes that I've already taken from previous assignments. Cause sometimes I have to remind myself like, Oh yeah, like I've already, um, re- I guess interacted with this subject in some way. And it is sort of like doing research. Sometimes I'll take a step back and be like, Are there sorts of artists that we haven't covered in this yet? One thing I always try to be mindful of is somewhat equal representation of like male, female, or like whatever uh, gender you want to call yourself. Uh, If anything, I'm always trying to introduce more female, more women into the conversation just because that's, that's who I am. Um, And then... Once we get in the booth, it is really just like a free for all. Um, our super producer, Floyd Hall, will have like a rough outline like, OK, we want to hit this around this point and stuff like that. But once Regina and I get talking, there's no telling like where we will end up. And sometimes Floyd will bring us back and be like, OK, this is all really great. Let's let's go back to like this path that I had drawn out. And we'll go from there. Um, it really is just like a free flowing session because for us anyway, it's the gems seem to come out of just like those moments that feel most like just a free for all conversation. That's when those moments come up because more often than not, what happens is that when Floyd is like, okay, we need like a final talking point. I will come up blank. I'll be like, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I hate being prompted like this. Don't ask me anything. But then like, he'll be like, all right, well, what do you think of Kanye and, you know, calling himself Jesus or blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden I'm I'm like pissed and fired and like ready to go. So just the more that it feels like an actual conversation where like the studio setting completely disappears, the better off the episode turns out. And then like Floyd and our editor, Stephen Key, just do what they do. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's crazy because they all seem so composed to me. I I mean, I think that's just a, a credit to the full team. And um, I just wanted to say I really hope it comes back because I love that shit. Oh, thank <laughs> you. We're, we're working on it. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. For sure. Yeah, I'd love to see it come back. It's it's a unique show. It's so special. Like, I really love that Black Wall Street episode particularly. I thought, like, just the opportunity to do that sounds amazing. And uh just everything you got into is so enlightening. So yeah, thank you for the podcast, like, first of all. Aww. Just the fact that those two seasons exist is like a uh, a blessing, I guess, yeah. Aw, thank um, you. But yeah, moving on to kind of looking at your journalism in a, I guess, a wider scope, or mind you, at the same time. Um, you talked about your internship with Paste, and like there you didn't just cover music. I think people know you as a music journalist, but you were covering like TV, movies, books and everything. So after that, what made you want to like focus specifically on music journalism from then on? I think um, I think music was ultimately where my interests just lied the most at that particular time. And but then also. My very nature with anything is wanting to know the thing inside out and 
otherwise I just don't feel comfortable. So I know a lot of friends who are able to be general assignment reporters. I have friends who are able to take on all these amazing beats, like whether that's um, home and gardening to, you know, Instagram trends and even be a little bit more fluid and, you know, flexible within the entertainment space. And I wish I could be that way. Um, sometimes I look and I'm like, damn, am I really just like, but that's, that's like my very nature. And the thing about Southern hip hop is that there is so much to it. If anything, I just want people to understand that it's not at all limiting to say that I focus on Southern hip hop. If anything, there is constantly more to be uncovered. And I feel like that's where I guess why I felt like I needed to be a specialist on that front. I think when you are contending with something like music or even like hip hop or even like Southern hip hop, it's that you can sniff out the inauthenticity. You can always sniff out the fact that like, oh, this person doesn't know their shit. And so probably it was just out of fear, first and foremost, like, oh, I have to sound like I know my shit. And there's only one way to go about that. And you can't like really cheat the system. So that's really what it came down to. It was that. I was interested in this stuff, but then also I recognized that like there's no way to do this sort of work without at least doing your best. Hmm. And like now at this point, you being like this like freelance extraordinaire, um, like how do you navigate that kind of freelance game? And so like how often are you pitching pieces to uh, publications? Um, I don't like pitching. It's probably my least favorite part of the whole process, but, um, I have to make myself do it at least, at least once a week. It has to happen. It's just like a, a, it's just a muscle. And I just have to tell myself like, this is just like getting the mail or taking out the garbage is just like a part of what I signed up for. Um, what has always worked for me is trying to make sure that I have at least two to three clients that I know I can count on consistently. And what I mean by that is that ideally these folk come to you and just be like, I need this however many times in this given month, whether that's whether that's an NPR, whether that's a band camp or whatever. It's folks that you know you can email and hear back from without a problem, without hesitation. And, you know, everybody is busy, but at least, you know, there's going to be a reply on the other side. Um, (laughs) So I think that's really what it comes down to. And it takes a lot of hard work to get to that point. But I think that's the really the only way to be stable in this whole thing is that you have to sort of create that stability for yourself. Yeah, is that something that you like prefer to cultivate for yourself, like creating your own stability? Or do you sometimes wish you just had like a staff writer job somewhere that you could just like <laughs> <laughs> have that security, I guess? You know what? For a long time, I wish that would come to me. Like for maybe the mm. first five to seven years of my career, there was a part of me that still wished that Creative Loafing, which is the Atlanta Alt Weekly, uh, stabilize itself to the point where I was like, can I just go to their office? Can I just chill? Can you just give me like a health insurance plan or whatever? <laughs> like I, I honestly, that was like the job that I wished for the most coming out of paste. Um, but what I've come to embrace with the freelancing thing is that I'm able to try out something. Um, and if an editor sees that I haven't necessarily covered this subject before or written for this publication before, 
they're more mm -hmm. likely to take like look at my past work and kind of see like at least she has the capability to try it's not so much that she's done the exact thing before it's that like oh like she does stuff and you know has turned stuff in before so i think for a while especially when i was doing a bunch of features i think that was when i really started to sort of embrace the uh the flexibility of it all because if i wanted to write mm. a profile about like um the longtime radio personality, Ryan Cameron, you know, like that wasn't out of my purview as a staffer because I'm not a staffer. I could just pitch it. Or like if I wanted to be able to write a profile on Zaytoven or something, I don't have to run that necessarily. I mean, I don't have to run that by anybody. I could just go pitch it and nobody would think twice about it because that's what I do. As a freelancer, I'm able to sort of embrace that particular freedom to I guess just explore my curiosity. So in a way it's, I think it, it is really great because then I don't know. I, I feel like I could just follow my whims, whatever. If I feel like mm. I'm particularly interested in this one subject, it's totally fine. I could go ahead and pursue that because as a freelancer, that's kind of what comes with the job. How long did you have to, um, you know, sort of work with an editor before you develop such a reliable relationship? And do you have any tips for freelancers who would be seeking to build that kind of a relationship? It doesn't take long because a lot of us are very unreliable, my, myself included. But, um, <laughs> but I think what ends up happening is that if you turn in like two to three pieces and they're like on time and close enough to clean, then that editor is going to love you. I think... For a long time, I hoped that if I turned in something that did not need to be edited, did not need to be touched, but ended up being a couple days late because I was so overly perfectionist about the whole thing, that I'd be a lot more fine with that. It ended up causing me and probably the editor a lot more stress, just wondering like when the thing is going to come in. And for a while, I was fine with that. But it's been over the past couple of years that I realized, like, one, it just gives me a headache to know that I'm just like putting this stress on myself. But um, but yeah, a lot of people also just don't turn in shit like on time. And I think editors look for that the most. Like, obviously, you can't just half ass something and then, you know, hope that just by making the deadline, you're going to be OK. There has to be proof that you did your that you did your absolute best and it meets whatever standards that they've that this publication has set out for themselves. But I, it, it's honestly pretty simple. It's pretty simple. It's that you do your best and you file it in on time. Because then what happens? Okay, and I'm speaking to folks that might get anxious about turning in something that exposes themselves as a fake. Like that part's not going to happen. What's going to happen is that the editor is going to get what they know is a draft and they're going to do their job and they're going to run it by you. And then you're going to be like, Oh, it's okay. It's fine. It, it turned out okay. And it benefits even more from just this added perspective, which again is this editor's job. So what, uh, I, I love that we're talking about writer, the kind of, we're tapping in a little bit to the writer, writer editor relationship. Cause I feel like that so rarely really gets fleshed out and talked about. So I don't know why this is like my thing today, but what's your ideal, 
um, writer editor back and forth in relationship and, or what's the best one or not to like name names or you can, if you want, but Uh that you've experienced where like, you were like, wow, that just like really worked the best for the both of us. Okay. Um, I think I'll tell you the one editor relationship that really had me like scared straight, probably for the better. But I, I remember very early on in my career, I turned in some blurb and the dude's feedback in all caps and red was just literally like, I'm not convinced. And I'm like, fuck, <laughs> I'm not Jeez. convinced. And like those words like still haunt me, but they um they were such a gro- great motivator because I feel like that really got me to where when I do research something, I am going to research that thing very, very thoroughly to where like in my head, I'm convinced. So that's like, that's like kind of the golden standard. Although, I mean, looking back, could he have said it a little bit nicer? I mean, probably. Could he be a little bit more constructive about it? Sure. But I'm going to remember his words for the rest of my life. Um, I think ideally, um, it's, I'm going to trust that editor has like a very, um, like a critical eye, but you're going to feel, you should be able to feel that this person is on your side as well. And ultimately that's what it really is. Sometimes it is kind of selfish where like nobody wants to look bad at their job, but at the end of the day, um, I do like it to feel very collaborative um, to where, you know, this editor sees like this structure needs to be worked on. What do you think of this, this and this, or try something that works for you? Cause then what happens is that after a couple days of a draft, you know, just sitting dormant or whatever, I might, you know, be able to come up with something like I, I, I get the time and space afforded to be able to like look at something with fresh eyes. Um, so I think the ideal editor perspective is one that's like very collaborative, um, bonus points that they're nurturing, but in general, I think just, um, not wanting to half-ass it really. Um, I think that's also important too. Kind of just seeing the potential in a piece and then have the, having that ability to kind of also see like what can make this like so much better as opposed to it just passing. Because that's the thing with like a lot of, um, I guess, online journalism too. These people really don't have to take the time, especially with like timely releases and stuff. It is so easy to bow under the pressure to just get things up on time in order to make like whatever clicks they need to make. Um, so anybody who really honors that and understands that if we're going to take the extra day just to make it that much better and that much more memorable, then then at the end of the day, that extra day isn't going to matter. Hopefully it's the takeaways that matter. Hopefully people walk away with that much needed perspective that they might not have been able to get 24 hours prior just because we hadn't had the time to marinate on it. Yeah. Um, I have to talk a little bit about Michael Eagle just because I am obsessed. <laughs> but the piece that um, you you wrote that I brought to the show a few weeks ago, um, the I forgot what it was called. I'm being nimble while riding out uncertainty, right? I love that title, by the way. absolutely adore it. But um, after having, like, read that, I found this kind of, like, kinship between you and Mike Eagle because you both do so much stuff I feel and I like kind of have your toes dipped into all these different things and when you're talking about like the freedom of freelancing 
and kind of gets like the insecurity that comes with it. It reminded me of a Mike Eagle line where he says, um, I should have chose the gig of income consistently. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just wanted to talk about like, and he's like out of the profile, I guess, of the artists you usually cover, like being from the South and covering Southern hip hop. So I want to talk about that's like, is that kinship something I've invented in my head or something that you feel as well with Mike Eagle? Oh, that, that, Open my Google Q&A was done for very selfish reasons. Um, <laughs> it was done during a time when I really wanted to figure that shit out for myself because not too long beforehand, uh, we found out that WABE, which is uh, Atlanta's NPR affiliate, had decided to drop bottom of the map. And that was a very heartbreaking, that was a very heartbreaking news for for me. And so, and even prior to that, um, I know the this, this show, Bottom of the Map, tries to cover a lot, and it is very ambitious in its own right. And it was just work, like, period. And I, and, um, I did feel a learning curve, I guess, between adjusting from being just solely a writer to, like, oh, people have to hear me talk now. I remember that being a huge source of insecurity. So at this time, I'm really just wanting to figure out how to do all the things and in my mind, when I pro- uh, approached Open My Eagle for that Q&A, he was like the quote unquote role model. Except the thing is, yeah. with it being Open My Eagle's nature, like he wasn't going to tell me like, oh, this is just like my business savvy. He wasn't going to not address the pandemic and how that has affected him from a business point of view. He was going to be really honest and really truthful about that. Um, so I guess to answer your question about going into profiles, that is kind of the goal going into every single profile is at least having a human understanding of like the person's wants and needs and being able to relate to them in some sense. I do think that going into Mm. every single profile, there's usually some sort of driving urge or gripe that I understand from like a human level beyond releases or any of the stuff that they do as a celebrity. Um, That's always the goal to kind of, bring that human aspect to it. So I wanted to talk uh, quickly about interview style, if that's cool, because I think that that particular style was really interesting. Do you, um, do you prefer an intro into transcription style like you did with that one, um, but kind of in your own way, or do you kind of prefer the more narrative style? Oh man. Um, the former is a lot easier for sure. It, it It is and it isn't, but I mean, you do have to be thinking about narrative arc either way. Um, I don't think it's like mutually exclusive. Um, I do like the Q&As just because they're easier to turn out, but the ones with, uh, I guess, like the more narrative style profiles, I agonize over them way more, but then they become like my little babies. I'm like, oh, those are so <laughs> precious to me. I, lo- I do love, love writing profiles. I really do. Um, I want to like have my podcast fan moment about some to say, because that's uh, I, the way Mickey loves button up. I love some to say. Um, I just want to know how you connect with Yo and Jar because you guys have such great chemistry. Oh, thank you so much. Um, well, I guess first, Jaw is one of those people who, if you're, um, an Atlanta music journalist at some point you're going to run into this person. You know, he's just one of those people who is like constantly like out and about. So to be perfectly honest, like I don't remember 
how we came to meet. It could have been at a hotel roof party. It could have been at some release party. I honestly have no idea. Um, but when he came up with the idea to do the podcast, he was like, I see you more on Twitter than I do in the street. So can we meet up and talk about this? I was like, first of all, that is so rude. I never want to be known for being on Twitter more. <laughs> but we met up and um, when he was talking about his idea for the podcast, this is around the same time that um, I would say like a podcaster or influencer by the name of Isaac Hayes III had called out I guess the entertainment industry for holding a bunch of events in Atlanta, but not really regarding the journalists that cover them or sort of employing mm. them. Like there, it was his own South Gotham to say moment where he's like, where are the Atlanta media at blah, yeah. blah, blah. So what Isaac Hayes said was very much like a call to action for a lot of people. So that's just in the sort of the background. Um, so then Ja asks who else can be a host on this show that is younger than us because uh, Ja is approaching 40. I'm 34. Um, and we need somebody who was in diapers when Soldier Boy was coming out. That, that not quite, but something like that. And, <laughs> and I immediately, I immediately thought of Yo, like immediately. Um, Yo and I met because he was following me on Twitter at the time. And this was when Jeezy did an anniversary show, I believe mm. for TM 101. He was selling tick the tickets had sold out and I wanted to get one for my partner, Mike. And I was like, is anybody selling a ticket? And yo, very stupidly decided to sell his ticket. Cause at that time he said he could, he didn't know why he bought it. So actually he and Mike met up first. And it was through there that I was like, oh, this is a person? This isn't the Dragon Ball Z house? Like, I don't understand. Because <laughs> like, <I don't> <laughs> that was his avatar at the time. And from there, we actually became friends. That's it. And so that is how Something to Say came to be. That's so crazy because, like, listen to it. It's like you've been friends for, like, like decades. It's, it's a really great show. Oh, oh yeah. Brandon, you. I think you want to say something. Yeah, so I just want to get into a little bit about, like, what you see your purpose as, as like a journalist. Um, cause like for me, for myself, like I went to journalism school before I knew I was going to do music journalism. And then like just suddenly had that realization that I was like, well, I can combine these two things. Like, why did I never think of that before? Um, but there's this quote I think about all the time that Ryan actually brought my attention to on this podcast when we were covering a piece on little Richard, like shortly after his death. And, uh, the quote is, where Little Richard says, I came from a family where my people didn't like rhythm and blues. Being Crosby, Pennies from Heaven, Ella Fitzgerald was all I heard. And I knew there was something that could be louder than that, but I didn't know where to find it. And I found that it was me. So I'm sort of, you know, looking, like trying to think of like, when when do I get my it was me moment? You know, sort of looking for that moment. Um, do you think that you have had that it was me moment? Um, I... I guess I have to acknowledge it to a certain degree because like I said before, I'm not particularly good at it, but I think it has been over the past year where I've understood what I could contribute, I think, first and foremost. And I think that's, I think that's dope. Um, I think, I think what I end up contributing at the end of the day 
is just a natural curiosity and this sense of wanting to get things right and Mm. building awareness toward those moments. It's sort of expanding our understanding of what is made readily available to us. Because unfortunately, when it comes to Southern hip hop, it's very easy for like those easy assumptions to like come to come across. Um, So... I feel like that's ultimately where my place is. It's like as a journalist, I almost see myself more as like we were talking about before, kind of elevating these particular voices or bringing them to the forefront where I feel like people are able to hear them more readily or more clearly. But as a journalist, it it almost feels like I'm the liaison or maybe like a translator of some sorts. If we're talking about like a profile, being able to just like bring awareness and attention and nuance to the very influences that shape our world today. Um, so I'm diligent. Right. And I think that's like, that's sort of, you know, very similar to like a realization I had about music journalism when I realized like how seriously in the journalism side of things, music journalism can be, uh, you know, it's more than just like writing about music or writing, you know, reviews on album. Um, it, what really got me into it was, recognizing that there are stories to be told and voices to amplify that can really like have an influence on the world. Um, in your interview with Unladylike, you said you're, you do music journalism with a focus on using hip hop as a lens to view the world. So how has viewing the world through the lens of hip hop, uh, sort of changed your view? You know, what is it like to look at the world without that lens as compared to through that lens? Um, you know, having grown up in Maryland, I um, I think my life was just like my life. I didn't recognize that what was hardship was hardship. And I feel like through hip hop, you kind of I think what hip hop has done more than anything else was provide ways and means to understand like how society worse works rather, I should say, because it is through hip hop that I understand the effects of poverty, um, redlining, mass incarceration, um, racism, of course. Um, it is through songs like My President is Black that I understand the overall euphoria. Like there is no mm. other song that captures what it was like for America to see its first black president. And we're gonna have that that token forever and ever and ever. I think I, I, I guess what hip hop has afforded me is really just like the, a politicized worldview and understanding that really in America, while we aspire to be a democracy and we have said like, oh, yeah, we're a democracy. Cool. And it's always been a selling point. The American dream has always been a selling point. Hip hop has helped me to understand that that's only been for a select few. And that history does predate hip-hop, but hip-hop helps me understand the after effects of that. It helps me understand how that influence has played out generation after generation because it's it's documenting it in real time. And so I think that that is mostly what hip-hop has afforded me. I think... I think being able to look at the world through that lens is such an immense privilege because it is like such a living and breathing document for what is like happening. And I think if people took the genre more seriously, 
as like firsthand accounts, then we wouldn't be having these inane debates over like where the country stands today. We wouldn't be having like these nitpicky fights over like what the terms black lives matter actually mean, for example. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think if people really came to regard hip hop as seriously as we all do here, then we wouldn't be having those type of conversations. We wouldn't be under, like, we wouldn't be, um, I don't know. We would just wouldn't be dumb. We just wouldn't be dumb. I feel like everybody <laughs> should listen to it. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, what's amazing about the responsibility of the journalist is that you get to then take that lens and you turn something that is music and you turn it into, you know, a story, you turn it into a narrative, you, you go and you do the research, you know, someone has a bar about like with open mic Eagle, just because we keep using that example, um, rapping about low income housing and like government housing. And you take someone just rapping about that and you go and you get the numbers for it. You go and you get the data to back it up. So we hear all the time about, you know, the power of hip hop. Um, but what do you think is the power of hip hop journalism? It's unfortunately we're in a place where that requires translation, where um, those perspectives kind of need that liaison. Because I think mm. I still come across people that regard the genre as just party music, even though partying can be politicized as well. You know, personal is political, blah blah blah. Um, I think. Because what hip hop is providing is like those firsthand perspectives. It's up to the journalist to provide like that necessary context and to really explain like this is where this person is coming from. And sometimes, you know, it's not like a substitute at all. It's really just supplementary supplementary material. It's um, that's that's basically what it is. Our job is to provide context. Yeah. And, you know, in a way like hip hop journalism, when done right, it really helps to achieve the same goal as the artist, which is getting the message out there in a way, you know, that's relatable for people because it's easier, you know, it's easier to digest, like, especially if it's not something that's directly within your personal experience, it's much easier to digest that through something like music. Uh, you know, and then like, you know, through the music, it leads you down a path where you then can make the connection to like real societal change and, you know, just an awareness of things that wouldn't have been accessible to you outside of that. Um, so does any, you know, with that being in mind of like, you have been trying to apply your lens to the world, uh, does any of your work, particularly in either a small way or a big way, stand out to you as having like, you know, particularly met those goals um i think i'm trying to make sure that i understand your question correctly can you repeat it one more time yeah so um just talking about like the goal of hip-hop journalism right um being to expand upon what the artists have talked about taking that lens and making it so that more people can see the world through that lens right so then just, you know, with that context being said, um, does any particular story or podcast or just collective work you've done, you think meet those goals, you know, like what, what meets those goals the most? Like mm. if there's any particular piece that mm -hmm. comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like um, people have said that a lot about um, Bottom of the Map in particular because it is coming from a public radio station and a lot of times... I, for whatever reason within that particular space, as we were developing the podcast, 
people tended to regard Southern hip hop as very limiting or there are, I guess the, one of the common bits of feedback we got was like, Oh, is this podcast like for my kids or something like that? I'm like, no, I mean, it could be, but you know, that's not what this is about. So I think folks are um, constantly surprised by just how, and how deep we can go into this stuff. I think that's first and foremost. Um, Another story that comes to mind might also just be coming to mind because my aunt framed it and it's literally sitting on my bookshelf right now. But uh, I wrote about the lasting influence of my president is black for the Washington Post as seen through how the gubernatorial um, campaign for Stacey Abrams played out and that there was a lot of hip hop artists local to Atlanta, you know, filing, you know, uh, their support for her. And I think it was it might have been a couple days after that story came out where Jeezy screen capped the story and said, like, go vote for Stacey Abrams. And I remember that meant a whole lot for two things. I think one, my president is black as celebrated as that song is today. Didn't get Jeezy to the white house. It got Jeezy name checked at the white house, like during the correspondence dinner, but for all the hip hop artists that Obama invited in, Jeezy was never one of those people. And I think um, in talking with him and through reading past interviews, there was like a chip on his shoulder being like, hey, you know, like I built up grassroots support for you. You know, I use this moment to actually get voters on a bus or on a van, you know, out in whoever knows where Georgia to like cast a vote for you and stuff like that. Like I was really about that life. And that was particularly important because Jeezy was never seen as a quote unquote political rapper. He was never regarded in that right. His slogan was literally trap or die. So um, I think in the elections following after that, the presidential ones, I mean, he told me that he didn't vote specifically because coming after those Obama administrations, he felt once again disenfranchised that his opinion didn't matter when that is the complete opposite of what a democracy promises. And I guess it just meant a lot to be able to um, put all that to print because I wanted people to be un- to understand the importance and the weight of when a democracy really means like for all. You know, when we're talking about like who gets to participate in this system, it is not just the folks that look good standing next to Obama. It's literally, it literally should mean anybody and everybody. And um, I think My President is Black really encompasses all that. It's a song that's very personally important to me. It's a song that's very personally important to a lot of people. And I think in that moment, I felt that Jeezy finally understood that just because he never got to step foot in the White House didn't mean that his contribution didn't matter. I feel like uh, <laughs> it's a cool. We kind of semi open with Jeezy and close with Jeezy. I feel like this is the Christina Lee interview from from Jeezy to Mike Eagle. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that is that is the most important part. Hip hop has range, people. Yes, yes, yeah. definitely. So um, we want to transition now into what are our in search of sauce signature questions to close this out. So just to kind of give you just like an understanding of what we're going for here, we're not 
into labeling anything the best and the worst, which is an essential part of Central Sauce's intention in journalism. To us, the inherent definition of sauce, who's got it and why it is subjective, is depending on your personal standards. And this is our three-question ending sequence, which we are calling, Who Besides You Got the Sauce? All so right. I'm going to start, yeah, so I'm going to start with the first one. Um, <laughs> you may have answered it with the two artists I just mentioned, but maybe you'll say someone else. Who's got the most sauce in the entirety of the music industry from any sector and why? Artist, media, label, manager, playlister, whoever. Who's got the most sauce out of anybody? Anybody in the entirety of the music industry from any realm. Oh, man. Sauce that I like, too. That's the key. Because <laughs> <laughs> there, there's people who got it. There's people who have influence. I just don't like them. Um, yeah. yeah. Not the sauce with too much salt. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, in the lead up, I thought of Baby Mother. I'm not sure if she's like the, the definitive answer to it. But like that. to that particular question, but I've just been loving her stuff as of lately, in part because by by um, by calling herself baby mother, I feel like she that takes sauce, that takes guts. And she kind of raps about it with this just sort of like not lackadaisical, but it's, it's in a way that it's just like, this is a, like the term baby mother is a much bigger deal than y'all like that y'all are making it out to be like, this is, this should not be a big deal is what I'm saying. Oh, who was the, who was the most sauce though? I feel like people got sauce in journalism. I feel like, um, the journalist Taylor Crumpton, she's got so much sauce right now. Yeah, she got a lot. Oh of yeah. Sauce. So much sauce. <laughs> yeah, so much sauce. Um, I don't know. In music journalism, it's crazy. Because, I mean, right now, I guess the people with definitively the most sauce are on Clubhouse right now. And Clubhouse just bores me as a concept. I'm like, <laughs> these people just want to feel like VIPs again during coronavirus. That's literally all it is. They want to feel important again because we have seen their blank walls on their Zoom calls. And we see that they're not <laughs> actually living that life. So... <laughs> But they, they, I'm sure they have sauce, too. That's fine. <laughs> I like the answer Taylor Crumpton and Baby Mother. I think that's fine. Yeah, I like, I like both <laughs> of those. Yeah. How sad Baby Mother's um, done now, though, after that one album, isn't she? I hope it's not true. I, I, it can't yeah. be. It can't be because Motherland was, is so, it's so good. It's so weird. It's so weird because I guess it's a game show to hell, kind of. But hell doesn't sound that bad at the same time. So who knows what it really is. <laughs> okay, so our second question of our signature questions is, um, who source do you admire most in your life outside of music and journalism? Uh, uh, there's, there's probably two people. Like, my partner Mike. M so much sauce. It's just because, <laughs> like, his tastes are, are super, super specific. And by that I mean, like... Verhoeven movies, John Carpenter movies, Billy Ocean. He loves Billy Ocean, as we all learned on something to say recently. Fucking loves Billy yeah. Ocean. He's just like, um, and we're watching JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, of course. Um, he's always been very staunch about 
nerd quote unquote nerd cultures but guess what nerd culture is cool now so now he mm-hmm. just looks amazing and like way ahead and he's just used to this like he always says he's used to like predicting <laughs> the future i'm like good for you and how was it um <laughs> so i would say like mike for sure i'm also thinking about um like my brother my brother like could not care less about well first of all my brother who's five years younger than me we're always listening to the diametric opposites of one another. And what I mean by that is when uh, What a Time to Be Alive came out, I was like, man, this is like a future mixtape. What's Drake doing here? And he was the, at the time, he was the complete opposite. He was like, future just sounds so sad. I'm like, shut up. That's the point. <laughs> that is the, that is the point. Um, and embarrassingly, when the whole Megan, Tori, this uh, Megan Thee Stallion and Tory Lane stuff was playing out. He was the only person I knew in the world that was like playing like Tory Lane's up until that point. I was like, who is playing Tory Lane's? Who is he? What does he do? Like, what are his <laughs> qualifications? And Bobby, of course, would be the one to tell me, like, I've been listening to nothing for Tory Lane's for two weeks straight. I'm like, dude, come on. What is the matter with you? But that's always good because he's always putting me on. <clears throat> to I guess like different perspectives that's that's the most important part right like he he was listening to an to xxx at a time when I feel like from a critical standpoint everybody just wanted to distance themselves but like kind of just seeing him play that shit out in his car Christmas time while we're parked at Walmart reminds me that as much influence as we journalists like to pretend that we have there's a whole other world out there where the influence is playing out and we can't do shit about it so for that reason, yeah, that's so much sauce. That's like NBA YoungBoy is like one of the Absolutely. most streamed rappers on YouTube. Absolutely, and it's like so minimal coverage. Yeah, the journalists and the critics like don't get it, but he's clearly like doing touching, numbers, so. touching souls. Yeah. Well, I think that's due to a couple things. I don't think that journalists don't know his influence. Mm-hmm. Dude is really hard to talk to. I had to interview yeah. him for Rolling Stone for artists you need to know. And um, my editor at the time was very, very generous. If there was an opportunity to use that same interview twice, once for the 10 artists you need to know feature and one for like a more extended, um, here's an artist, more extended profile, then he was all about it, which was great because I got twice the amount of money for a single interview. But for for then NBA Youngboy, there was no way because the dude refused to like stay on topic he seemed to often forget that he was on the phone he um he was in the studio he would like talk to like the engineer and like things like that and the the publicist which i've never seen before literally had to like yell like sir you were on the phone you were on the phone we have 20 minutes this could be done in and out and then he'll be like oh so like where are you coming from where are you calling from like why don't you just call down the studio and it was it was it was rough. So any profile I do see of him, I have to consider as nothing short of a miracle because hmm. even my editor for Rolling Stone at the time looked at what I turned in and was like, "You got nothing from him, did you? You got nothing." I was like, "I couldn't." It was like a child mm-hmm. trying to like crawl out of the playpen. There was nothing <laughs> that could be done. And I don't say that of many people, but he is one of those who I feel like is really hard to interview. Um, and there is no, 
class that can break that down if there is i would love to attend it i would just love to know how do you <laughs> capture this guy's attention i just have no idea none well i would actually maybe a good a good read a good read to suggest on that would be um alex haley's um epilogue i guess of the malcolm x autobiography because oh, um, really? he 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 writes about how difficult that it was to literally to get a person like Malcolm X, first of all, to trust him enough to talk about anything. Um, and then second of all, to cover enough that he could coherently like write his life story. Um, it's, it's lengthy. It's not just like an article, but I, that it would be a very good read just in the vein of what you're talking about. Any podcast that's comparing Malcolm X to NBA young boy is a winner in my book. So I'm hundred percent down, hundred percent down. Oh my God. Uh, that's the real name of this episode. From GZ to open Mike Eagle from NBA young boy to Malcolm X. <laughs> oh God. Uh, our last, so our last question. And I think I might already know your answer based on something you said earlier. Uh, but so you brought the sauce to this episode of the podcast what journalist do you think can bring the most sauce to our next interview? Oh, like, yeah. I mean, there's so many music journalists I feel like are doing it right. I feel like Taylor Crumpton is one. My my friend Joel Wicker is another one. Um, a journalist who I looked up to as I was getting started is Maurice Garland, for sure. For sure. Um, who also wrote a companion piece to that NPR Southern Hip Hop canon and stuff. Right. Amazing. Um, Rodney Carmichael and Sidney Madden of Louder Than a Riot. Oh, my God. You know, yes. as individuals, both of them are amazing and accomplished, but, like, together, I'm like, I remember when Sydney <laughs> was first telling me about the podcast and Bro. what they were doing, but I did not imagine it was going to be playing out like that where they were going to take be taking all of us out how dare they that was so rude um there's so there's so many people out there there really is i i feel like i could just keep going and obviously you all have already had yo on the show so is that that's not even a question um even though john makes it sound like it's absolutely nothing i feel like his grasp of alliteration is just something to be i i don't know it needs a medal yeah <laughs> I'm going to say this here officially. I so much on this podcast would love to have Sydney Madden and Rodney Carmichael be on here after they complete Louder Than a Riot and we all hear all the episodes to talk to them about that process because that thing is unbelievable. They just did the episode about, oh, what was it? The I'm sorry, I'm going to look it up real quick. It was so good. Was it Mac Phipps or? Yeah, Mac Phipps. No, the one. Killer Mike. Killer Mike, I think it was that's Killer the, Mike. That's the opener. Yeah. The conspiracy against hip hop. Sure. The opener. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, Christina, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Um, thank you for having me. I hope yeah, you yeah. are able to make a coherent episode out, the, out of this. Oh, definitely. You I'm know like, what? Oh, easily. Right? I think this has been fantastic. Christina, yeah. you got you got time for one more question because I I wanted to ask this earlier and I sure. Couldn't, but I really want to ask you about this and it's to <laughs> gas you up a little bit at the end of this episode. And we're talking about all the sauce. You okay. got the ultimate website sauce. 
Oh my I God. don't know what it is with your website, but the aesthetic is like the ideal thing for a music journalist. I looked at that and I was like, damn, I gotta step up my game. Oh so my what, gosh. Can you give us a little bit of what you did to finesse that sauce on the website? I had to pay money. There's no <laughs> secret beyond secret paying talent. money. Um, Yo, the, we were talking um, about it. I was I like, have. if she did that on her own, she's no crazy. No freaking <laughs> way. I had to pay money. The designer is called signal boost and so typically if you search signal boost squarespace you'll be able to find her but um yeah i couldn't do that i i hate (laughs) squarespace i'm not gonna lie it's completely unintuitive i don't understand this legos building block system because you have to understand i come from the age of blogs i come from the age of like being able to understand tags and not being able to see that and just like dragging and dropping it drives me insane i hate it so i needed somebody to help me out and so I buckled down. I just went ahead and did it because I was like, then I'll never have to do this again. I will never have to do this again. And the only criteria I had was, aside from sending a couple sites of inspo, I was like, I don't want a white background. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it pretty easy to update even though someone else designed it? Yeah. Um, the writing section is easy. The um, audio and the speaking ones I created myself and I hate updating those because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but with the writing stuff, it is very easy to update. Uh, yeah, I got I got Wix, but I guess that's the real thing at the end of the day. If you want the real sauce on your website, you better get your bread up. No, I'm sure I'm sure there's other folks um, that, could, that can help. But it just at that particular time, I was like, let me just can I just not continue on with muckrake who always f's my shit up and is always like uploading clips that i don't want people to see or like you know like i saw that people were passing along my old wordpress i was like don't do that that is like a freshman year yearbook like don't do that like that is not relevant to any of my interests right now please stop so i had to do what i had to do yeah so that's the final thing for this In Search of Sauce episode. Sometimes you got the sauce yourself, but sometimes you just got to pay for the sauce. Sometimes you just got to pay for the sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, Thank you, you for so your time, much. Christina. Oh, thanks for having me. This episode of In Such a Source featured Mickey Hellerback, Brandon Hill, Ryan Gord, Sam Source Creative Collective, and Miss Christina Lee. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Terry, the Fifth and Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Basti. as a trail breakers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Links with Basti, Trail Breakers, Central Source, and the Fifth Element can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. <laughs>